Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Tar Heel Prescription, a student-run podcast here at the UNC School of Medicine. My name is Anu, and today we're back with another episode of the specialty series, and not one, but two special guests. I am delighted to have another neuro nerd as a guest co-host today. My friend, would you please introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. My name is Faris Kalgarazi. I'm a second-year medical student at UNC, and like Anu said, a fellow neuro nerd. Uh, I'm currently undecided on specialty, but I'm fairly certain it will involve the nervous system in some way, which is why I'm so excited to be here today and introduce our very special guest, Dr. Garden. I met Dr. Garden this past summer through the Castillo Scholars Program and had a wonderful experience working with Dr. Wilbuya and Dr. Rubinos. Highly recommend the program. Dr. Garden, thank you so much for being here. If you would, please tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do here at UNC. Well, hello. My name is Gwen Garden. I am the current chair of the neurology department in the School of Medicine. I also am a neurologist who sees patients at UNC Hospital and run a research program primarily on understanding how the immune system interacts with the brain in the setting of neurodegenerative diseases. That sounds incredibly fascinating, and I really am going to pick your brains about that later. Um, It is a pleasure to have you here today, Dr. Garden. To dive right in, could you tell us more about your personal journey into neurology? How did you find yourself here? What experiences shaped your decision? Well, it was a bit of a circuitous route. I started as an undergraduate interested in doing research, and I actually started by happenstance. Uh, participating in the work-study program, working in an immunology laboratory. But through coursework, I became very interested in the brain and how it worked and eventually tried to switch into a neuroscience laboratory and was thinking about, uh, for a long time, trying to decide between going to medical school or going to graduate school and eventually heard from a friend about the MD-PhD program, which um, at that time was not as established as it is today, and eventually decided to apply to an MD-PhD program and ended up uh, pursuing that at the University of Washington in Seattle and uh, had a really wonderful experience uh, in that program, was very excited about the neuroscience research I was able to do for my PhD. But in medical school during rotations in my third and fourth year, I became very torn and was very interested in infectious disease and immunology, as well as neuroscience, and really didn't understand how I might put those together into a a particular specialty. And it also happened to coincide with the real height of the HIV pandemic, and was very interested in HIV and caring for these patients, they were very compelling. So initially, I actually went and pursued an internal medicine residency. But while I was doing my internship, I realized I was still very drawn to patients who had neurologic disease as well, just hadn't been as exposed to them in my medical school experience. And uh, eventually decided to leave internal medicine and pursue a neurology training, mainly because I just found those patients to be the ones I enjoyed taking care of the most. Wow. Um, uh, In your career, you have worn many hats as a neurologist, clinician, researcher, administrator, and you continue to do so today. Uh, Which role have you enjoyed the most? 
That's a very difficult question to answer because uh, in medicine, if you don't enjoy doing something, you probably should stop doing it. And because there are always too many different things that you could do. And I actually have really enjoyed all of those hats, which is why I continue to do all of them. But I think at base, I think I enjoy doing research the most. It is the most exciting when you come across a new discovery. And it is also the most in-depth mentoring opportunities occur in the research setting. And those are the things I really enjoy. So um, if I had to put my hand down and say there was one I enjoyed the most, it would probably be research. But I really enjoy doing administrative work as well as taking care of patients. On the note of those different hats, funnily enough, um, we'd like to ask you more about the researcher and administrator roles. Can you tell us more about doing research as an MD, what that looks like and what being in an administrative role looks like? Well, let me start with the administrative role because it's a little bit simpler. <laughs> being an administrator takes two different types of skills, probably more than two, but two main ones. One is a skill that I'm very familiar with as a person who does a lot of research, and that's as an analyst. You have to look at carefully what's working in the organization and what's not working and analyze a lot of data and try to come up with a clear plan with a metric that you can assess as to whether or not your plan is working. And you have to set decision points at which you will say, OK, the plan isn't working. And so all of the skills you learn as a researcher really help you to be effective as an administrator, whether you know your primary goals are around financial responsibility or they're around things like improving access to care for patients and improving the numbers of patients that can be seen by a group of healthcare providers. Those are all goals that you have to approach as an administrative or clinical program. And the other thing that you have to be as an effective administrator is great at communication, because oftentimes to be an effective administrator, you have to get people inspired to change what they have been doing. And promoting change is very difficult unless you are extremely effective at communicating the need for that change and your hypothesis as to why you believe that you will achieve your goals more effectively by bringing about that change and how your plan to change is going to prevent against the feared negative consequences of the change. So I think that having a career as a researcher where you also have to communicate effectively about your results, convince trainees, colleagues, et cetera, what the best next experiment to do would be, convince colleagues that your results mean what you think they would mean. <laughs> so you have to be an effective communicator in both oral communication and written communication as a researcher. And having many years of experience communicating in the research setting also really helped prepare me for a role as an administrator. I also started in research administration, which is, I think, a career component that many people in training don't know much about. But there are a lot of opportunities to learn leadership and administrative skill by taking leadership roles in larger research programs where you have staff that you have to hire. It can be very complex, the different roles that people take on and you manage very large budgets. And so that's really where I got started in administration. I've always really enjoyed that. I still would say that's a big part of you know, feeling successful as a researcher is is to not just create your own data and understand what it means, but also to create a platform for other people to be able to achieve their research goals. And and that's, you know, another area of leadership in medicine that people um, may not really think about often until someone asks them to do it. And in 
In terms of the second half of your question, being a researcher as a physician, there's not a huge difference in that from people who are researchers who are not physicians, except that your time is a bit divided. So it depends tremendously on what area of medicine you choose to specialize in, how much you can divide your time. In neurology, I'm lucky that it's an area of medicine where we frequently are able to commit a big portion of our time to doing research. Some types of medicine, especially the surgical areas, it is more difficult to have large chunks of your time committed to research. But for me, I have had periods where I've been 80% research, 70% research, and those really enabled me to build a career, build a research team, get the ideas that I wanted to pursue going effectively. And then I might go back to doing a little more clinical work or um, what I ended up doing, which is taking on a lot of administrative responsibility. So those enable you to you know, continue your research activity, but still fill out your time with needed roles in, in other areas. And I always really enjoy leaving research for few weeks at a time to do clinical work. It makes what you do as a researcher feel very grounded in understanding that even when experiments not, might not work the way that you hoped, you can understand why it's worth persevering because you can see uh, how research is impacting patient care every day. And that's been a super exciting part of being a neurologist in this particular era because when I started, there were not nearly as many different treatments that we can offer patients uh, as we have today. Wow, there's so much overlap between the research world and sort of being an administrator. Um, so many gold nuggets, I think, for anyone interested in doing uh, either of those. Uh, but bringing it back to medicine, um, sort of talk to us about a day, and you kind of hinted at it a bit, um, a life as a neurologist, sort of. Uh, it seems like you're able to shift different times and schedules. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, neurology, like many other areas of medicine, has over the last 10, 15 years become split between people who focus on ambulatory neurology in the outpatient clinic setting and people who focus on taking care of neurology patients in the hospital. That was not the typical pattern when I first started, but it is becoming much more the case today. And so if you decide to become a neurologist, you often very early on will make a choice whether or not you would have focused on being in the clinic or working in the hospital. So that's two very different days now, right? So the hospital neurologist will be in the hospital pretty much all day. They will split their time between seeing patients that have been admitted to the hospital and seeing patients in the emergency room. And they're involved in the diagnosis of these acute changes in the nervous system that require patients to be hospitalized, uh, sometimes because of what they need for treatment and other times because they've acquired a disability that means it's not possible for them to care for themselves at home. And uh, then we work through trying to come up with a treatment plan, making sure our diagnosis is correct with testing. And then eventually uh, either the treatment plan is effective, people can go home, or they may need some time in a rehabilitation setting. And we call our colleagues and rehabilitation medicine, and they help us transition the patient out of the hospital. Um, in the ambulatory setting, it's a very different day. People show up in the clinic. They see patients who are new, they've never seen before. They see patients who they're caring for, uh, who have chronic neurologic diseases. Depending on the style of practice that the particular group is using, they may supervise 
nurse practitioners or physician assistants in taking care of patients um, who are there for routine follow-up care to assess the toxicities of the different treatments that we give. Because many neurologic diseases actually are immunologic diseases, we tend to be using a lot of these very powerful uh, regulators of the immune system for our patients, and that requires a lot of very uh, intense monitoring of of patients um, because you know we're having to make sure that they're not developing the side effects of of those big uh, immunomodulatory medications. Wow, there's a lot of variety in the field. Thank you so much for um, telling us about both the hospital and the ambulatory aspects of being in neurology. Another more logistical question before we dive into some more intriguing topics. Can you break down the logistics of what a medical student interested in pursuing neurology should do now to best prepare for applying to residency? And also, what does the training for neurology look like in terms of residency itself and options for fellowships? So for medical students interested in going to neurology, I would recommend uh, taking at least one, but hopefully more than one rotation in a neurology area. Now, for those students who are still in the preclinical years, I think that there's not a lot to do other than pursue your interest, right? Read about neurology. If you're really interested in doing research, I would encourage people to reach out to the faculty in our department or uh, faculty in the Neuroscience Center. There are also faculty working on really interesting neurologic disease processes in, in departments you might not be thinking too much about, including psychiatry and biomedical engineering. And so there are many, many different opportunities for medical students to participate in what we call translational research projects, as well as clinical research projects, uh, like what RISC did over the summer. And, and so that's one thing that students can do in the preclinical years. In the clinical years, like I was saying, rotations, you can take one here at UNC and maybe one at another institution that you might be interested in uh, considering for residency training. And sometimes you might take, say, adult neurology rotation and then a pediatric neurology rotation because if you are at all interested in pediatrics, but you're also, how do you call yourself, a neuro nerd? Um, there's really amazing opportunities in the pediatric space for people interested in neuroscience. And I would encourage anybody who's torn between pediatrics and neurology to really look into pediatric neurology because it's its own residency um, where you do several years of pediatric training and then pediatric neurology or child neurology. And, and you can also do a inpatient neurology elective and an ambulatory neurology elective so you can get a taste of what those two different lifestyles might be like. In terms of residency opportunities, neurology is still one of those areas where uh, the positions are not all filled by U.S. graduates. So it is a, um, an area of medicine which you can you know, be relatively certain that you will, if you if you apply broadly enough, get a spot. And um, in and the opportunities for training are great, and the job opportunities are really tremendous. The number of positions and how uh, much health systems are competing for neurologists has really it's it's really expanded in a sort of explosive way in the last few years because there are so many new treatments and we really need people with specialty training to manage patients and those new treatments then hospitals are really trying very hard to ensure that they can hire neurologists because um, it has only really been in the last few years that people 
are realizing the big need that there is for neurologists. And also the aging population has made a greater demand for neurology assessments. So, so there's lots of career opportunities. Uh, residency, at least today, is still uh, very achievable. And fellowship opportunities are expanding as well. So after residency training, people can choose to subspecialize in a, in a particular area of neurology, not just inpatient versus outpatient, but you could decide to become a specialist in stroke. And uh, again, hospitals really like those stroke specialists because it's become very complicated to decide who should have very acute interventions for their stroke versus who would not benefit from those somewhat risky acute interventions and would be better off just you know having rehabilitation care for their stroke. And those are those are high stakes decisions that have to be made very quickly in the emergency room setting. And so they really need people with very specialized training to be able to make those kinds of decisions. You can also subspecialize in areas uh, like neuroimmunology and take care of patients with those uh, uh, immunologic diseases that end up impacting the nervous system. And it's been really fascinating. The number of these different types of immunologic disorders has been growing rapidly as people discover very specific antibodies that interact with the nervous system and cause very specific patterns of symptoms. And so this has become another area where people need subspecialty training to try to really sort out who has an immunologic disease versus um, you know, a common disorder like uh, Alzheimer's dementia ver versus a, you know, an autoimmune reason why they're developing cognitive impairment. So we often hear that every specialty has own personality type or types. Uh, how would you describe most individuals that go into neurology? Um, any particular traits that might point an undecided medical student in the direction of neurology? Well, I think it's uh, like many areas of medicine. There's a lot of different personalities in neurology because we do have these very different needs. Like I was just talking about stroke neurologists who are kind of like emergency room doctors, right? They, they need to have that calm in the storm sort of personality, you know, that, that I can handle this even though I'm making a life or death decision. And, and that, you know, might be a very different personality from someone who is sitting in the clinic trying to decide which genetic testing panels to send on a patient who's developing a muscular dystrophy or, um, you know, cognitive decline and may has, has a family history but it's not clear what the particular pattern is. And so those are, you know, really very different skills. And the only kind of common denominator that uh, I can come with is somebody who really enjoys analysis. Maybe there's a wide variety of the speed at which that analysis needs to take place. But people have to enjoy that process of really thinking through where in the nervous system is this problem coming from? We, we often talk about neurology is a lot about real estate. Where in the brain, where in the spinal cord, where in the peripheral nervous system is the pathology. And then analyzing, okay, I've figured out where it is, now what is it? You know, there's a constellation of symptoms, there's all the testing that we do, and we can then try to not only localize, but also determine what the actual pathophysiology of the disease is that's causing these symptoms. So you have to really enjoy that thought process. And if you do, and I would say a very large number of physicians do because in many ways 
differential diagnosis is why you go into medicine. Everybody's nodding. <laughs> um, so, so if you like differential diagnosis, you probably would like neurology. And in the days when I was making my decision, the difficulty was that in neurology, you had to choose that you would do it and you would enjoy taking care of those patients, knowing that you might not have very effective treatment to offer a large portion of your patients. But today, that is really different. Today, it's really not that different if you're a cardiologist or a neurologist. It's not that different if you're an endocrinologist or a neurologist. You're going to have a lot of different complicated treatments that are effective to offer your patients. And there's going to be a lot of complex choices about, you know, which toxicities the patient can handle versus, um, you know, their other comorbid diseases, their age, and, and the severity of the disease that they're dealing with. And so there's all this balancing that has to happen, which at my generation of neurology, we didn't really think about as much. But now it's really not that different from being some other type of physician that's making those difficult treatment decisions every day. You know, should I give this patient this medicine for heart failure or that medicine for heart failure? It's the same thing now. Should I give this multiple sclerosis patient this medicine or that medicine? And um, and that was not something that I had expected to happen when I was training in neurology. But today, um, I think it's very hard for medical students because neurology is not that different from any other area of medicine anymore. That is a very good point. Thank you. So personally, what keeps you anchored in neurology? Is there something about the specialty that medical students may be surprised to hear? Well, I would say what keeps me anchored is is really the years of experience that I have and the colleagues that I've made around the country in this field and and how so many of the colleagues that I've um, known for the last 20 something years are really making a difference in their own uh, specific subspecialties. You know, I have colleagues who've been around taking care of patients with this disease called spinal muscular atrophy for their whole careers. And now we have gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. And it used to be this incredibly devastating disease of, you know, that for which there was nothing you could do other than support people as they acquired more and more disability and many of them died. Um, but now we have this effective gene therapy and to see that happening and to see the people that I've known from before the therapy to after the therapy and how their careers have grown and changed during that transition. It's one of the things that I just have really enjoyed and, and has made me want to stay and see what's happening on a regular basis. Uh, I think for for people making these decisions today, I think one of the things that's attractive about neurology is there's still so much more that could happen. Gene therapy for the nervous system diseases is really just in its infancy, and it is growing uh, and will be, I think, in all of your careers, a huge part of what you're able to do for patients. The other area of neurology that's super exciting is in the types of interventions that are done in an electrophysiological um, manner. Now, currently, those tend to involve either a partnership with a neurosurgeon where a device is implanted, and then that device is able to signal in the nervous system in a way that can really change the symptoms of the disease by altering the 
actual circuitry. So um, the most common example would be this deep brain stimulation for patients with Parkinson's disease, where that type of intervention can dramatically improve the symptoms of tremor. And we are currently developing more ways in which this type of technology can be used for a, a bigger variety of nervous system diseases and even less invasive ways uh, through, through what's called transcranial approaches. So the electrical stimulation doesn't even have to be um, placed by a neurosurgeon. And some of these approaches are already being used by our colleagues in psychiatry to treat uh, different disorders that involve you know, these circuits and neurotransmission. And there, you know, there's tremendous growth in this area and the types of symptoms and disorders that can be treated in this way. So I think between genetics, gene therapy, more specific immunotherapy, and uh, this electrophysiological approaches to changing neural circuitry in patients who have diseases, there's just going to be so many additional things to do for our patients developing over the next 25 years that um, I would say something that would draw students into neurology would just be the excitement around how much it's going to change and how much more there is going to be to do in the future. Yeah, I got a little taste of that uh, working with Dr. Oboya over the summer with the uh, sort of epilepsy and seizures, uh, deep brain stimulator, RNS, vagal uh, nerve stimulators. So that was pretty cool. Uh, given your own experiences and career thus far, what is one thing you would say to folks out there who are interested in becoming future neurologists? What is one thing you would want them to take away from this discussion today? I would say that the one thing I would want medical students who are considering what to do with their career to take away from this discussion is that neurology is a area of medicine for which there's growing demand and will be a very exciting place to be in medicine during their careers. Um, on a fun note, what are some things that you recommend everyone should do to nurture their brain health? So, well, okay. Um, I guess the, the easy answer is exercise. There's just really been a, a tremendous amount of data in the last 10 years demonstrating how much exercise improves the uh, ability of the brain to recover from all kinds of different uh, potential pathologies that are developing, especially with age. And the second thing would be sleep. Probably not the most popular recommendation for medical students, but sleep is also incredibly important for brain health. And I think that uh, we as physicians are not the best messengers for this recommendation, but it is something that we should be uh, thinking about more and trying to live by that, that the brain needs to sleep in order to function appropriately, whether you're young or old. And as we age, that becomes even more important. Thank you for reminding us that we should think about sleep more. <laughs> um, on a nerdy note, you've been alluding to this throughout most of our discussion. Um, you know, the human brain is absolutely incredible. Um, and you've mentioned that one of the things that would be very attractive about neurology is the fact that it's an like the brain is an enigma and there is an abundance of opportunity to unravel mystery. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the pace of discovering the field. You've already talked about it a little bit since when you started in the field. 
But yeah, just wondering if you could tell us more about, you know, where you see this going um, in the future. Well, I think it's important to differentiate the research that goes on into the normal function of the nervous system and the research, which is really more what I've been talking about, into how to understand diseases and pathologies within the nervous system. So the normal function of the nervous system is still a really exciting area of research. There's, there is a tremendous amount that we don't understand in terms of how the nervous system works predominantly in these areas of things like emotion and cognition. And we, we understand so much more than we did even just a few years ago. And tremendous discoveries have been made in different how different areas of the brain work and how the brain can adapt to, you know, one particular part of the brain not working. And um and those many of those uh discoveries have been made through imaging studies. So now with a variety of different techniques, we can see how networks are working and changing while people are being exposed to language or uh, other types of visual stimuli or being asked to do motor tasks. So we're really learning a lot about the specifics of how the brain can function just in a normal state. And, and that's very exciting and has inspired lots of uh, both non-physician and physician researchers to pursue careers. But the other side is, you know, why does an individual develop epilepsy? Right? What is it about the brain that changes where, you know, the first 20 years of your life, you've never had a seizure and then you have a seizure and then Maybe you have another seizure and then you have multiple seizures unless you take a medication and you end up having to take that medication for the rest of your life. What What's happening? Why? You know, it, it, like you said, it's an enigma, right? But it turns out it's not so much of an enigma as it's a series of events, right? It's not one thing. It's multiple changes that happen. And I think we have come to this recognition, not just through neuroscience, but through generally shifting the focus in all of medicine away from this concept of, you know, X causes Y to understanding that oftentimes you have three, four, five different changes that eventually lead to a particular constellation of symptoms. And so we have to expand out and not think about this as, well, there'll be a eureka moment of discovery, but instead teams of people approaching a problem from a multidisciplinary um, perspective where just with the epilepsy, for example, um, you might have one person who's really focused on the particular channels that might not be functioning appropriately in a particular subset of neurons. And then you have another scientist who's trying to understand the genetics behind one of those channels and why it's not functioning. And then you have another scientist who's really trying to expand beyond the particular neurons that might not be functioning well to understand the, the broader circuits that are being um, made to not uh, stay in their normal function and to take on this repetitive cycling of, of you know, epileptiform activity that lead to a seizure and how those circuits are being changed by this small group of neurons that might not have been functioning appropriately in the first place. And then you have another group of scientists who are thinking about how that interacts with the immune system 
and what the immune system is doing in order to change these circuits. So this is the, I guess, the future, right, for most of trying to understand. And I don't think this is unique to neurology, although um, you know, the brain is, is a little bit more complicated in terms of the numbers of different types of cells and how they interact than some other organ. But I think this multidisciplinary approach and the understanding that we don't always have these direct linear relationships in medicine has um, you know, created a change in the way we try to understand disease. And that is going to, I think, be you know, one of the things that uh, will make neurology exciting in, in the future and will help us move past just thinking about it as well, we don't understand it, which we do that a lot in medicine. <laughs> but, you know, well, we don't understand it. Let's try to put together a team of people with a lot of different perspectives and see if we can gain in understanding. Or alternatively, what probably happens more often is, you know, people are in their silos doing what they do. They publish their work and then, you know, some graduate student or medical student, you know, pulls these random different things together and says, hey, maybe, maybe it's like this. <laughs> and, um, and that's, you know, uh, how I guess we move from thinking of something as an enigma, something we don't understand, into, you know, a consensus of opinions from a number of disciplines that can enable us to achieve a new understanding. Sounds like a multifaceted enigma. And there's so much to look forward to in this field. So thank you so much for highlighting that. Um, well, these are all of the questions that we have for you. We'd like to leave a little bit of room for you now to share any other thoughts or insights that you might have about anything, med school, life, medicine. Well, I would say that medical school is, um, it's a great opportunity for people to learn about medicine. But one thing that I think is really important for people in medical school to always keep track of is medical school is not an obligation to do something that you find yourself doing that you are not passionate about. I I see a lot of medical students who feel sometimes resigned to career choices that they might have made at one particular point in time and not really pursuing their passions because they feel that they had this tremendous opportunity and it's their responsibility to just continue to move forward with whatever choice they made. But I don't think that physicians are serving medicine most effectively unless they are doing what they are most passionate about. And it is important to remember that you know, your responsibility is to be the best, whether it's physician, whether it's healthcare policymaker, whether it's health economics um, or, or drug development um, or any number of other types of careers that can develop out of a med medical education, it's important to do what you're passionate about because that's where you'll make the biggest contribution and to not feel that a choice that you might have made as a third or fourth year medical student is the last choice that you should make. If you're not loving it, then you do have the chance to make another choice and to go a different direction. And um, that, if you have that perspective, it can make the choosing feel less anxiety provoking and less profound and, um, and sometimes make it easier to actually make the choice. Well, Dr. Gardens has been absolutely delightful talk. Thank you for sharing some of your time, wisdom. We were humbled for you to come over and join us in the podcast. 
For our listeners, that was Dr. Gwyn Garden and a little snapshot into neurology. My name is Rizkal Grazi. My name is Anu. Thank you for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on the Tar Heel Prescription. 